In this episode, we're answering one of our listener questions. It was such a good question, we decided to devote an entire episode to it. And we'll be covering how to go about buying your first investment property. We see people in different states regionally come to us and maybe their house is worth seven or 800000 but it's a really great house and it ticks all their boxes and they're not going to leave, like you said. But they've also, you know, got great jobs and they're earning great money and so they're going, well, let's use all that equity there uh, and let's buy, you know, into Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Our question is from Lily. She says, I'd be interested in an episode about buying your first investment property, assuming you've already bought your first home. Now, Lily had six specific questions. <laughs> this is why it's a whole episode, really, covering how to know that you're ready to buy an investment property through how to structure your borrowing, how to choose an asset and what pitfalls to avoid. So he goes with the first of those six questions. Financially, what are some indicators you're ready to buy an investment property? For example, is there a rule of thumb for how much your first place of residence or the the first property that you own, uh, how much of that you should have paid off first? And does that count money in an offset account? Thank you so much, Lily. When I got this email through with the question, I was like, this is such a well-crafted question in terms of there was so much thought put into it. And it really helps us delve deep into some of the things people are thinking about if they're considering their first investment property. So thanks for such a brilliant question. I guess the the financial, what are the indicators whether you're ready to buy an investment property? Um, It's a really interesting question as well because um, I think often clients uh, have gone way past those indicators. You know, they've looked years and years later and they've paid off their home and, you know, one at the moment has got, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings, like so risk adverse. And the indicators were actually maybe 10 years ago. And so for them, they've gone way past it and they've wasted 10 years. And time is our biggest asset in life. And so that's definitely um, too late. But I also see clients um, do too early. You know, they uh, get a little bit of equity in their home, they've got the capacity, and then they go leverage up to the hilt. And I've definitely seen clients buy multiple properties um, and, you know, basically blow it all up because they had to sell their home or they've had to sell an asset or one of those properties has been a poor investment. So just well, thinking one, about it. I mean, I was about to say in that scenario, I've seen that many, many times where the minute yep. they've got a skerrick of equity, they go and borrow and it's yep. usually not enough to buy anything any good. So they buy a piece of junk and then they do it all over again and over again and over again. And so that's, Absolutely. that's, but I've seen people do it the opposite way as well, where they've just, the indicator was 10 years ago. I had one client, this has happened a couple of times actually, where I've had a client come to me and say, right, well, actually I don't need to borrow. So I'm just going to buy an investment property cash. I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, whether they've sold shares or had a business or whatever it was, it's like, that's fabulous. But you need to go and get some financial advice because you can, you know, divide that equity. You can borrow, you can actually, um, you know, 
get a n- numerous assets in that scenario without actually costing you in terms of cash flow at all. Yeah. You know, and depending on where you are in life and the risks that you do or don't want to take, I mean, quite shock. That's an ultimate risk aversion. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's one thing we will cover is you know if you have got uh, capacity or borrowing capacity from the bank or you can borrow money basically, um, really you should be borrowing to buy investments and then putting your money in the offset, even if you're in that, you know, fortunate position. So I guess going back to sort of Lily's first question is what are some of the indicators? I really like to have a bit of a life chat here. And if you were a client, Lily, I'd be sitting down and saying, okay, yeah, I know you bought your first home, but you know, what's going to happen with your life? You know, you're married, you're going to have kids. Um, are you going to want to move to a different city for work or for lifestyle? Um, you know, the home you're in now, can that can you renovate that? Would you be happy there? Do you love the area? Do you love the street? Um, you know, or you, would you overcapitalize if you did a renovation? And so I think that real sort of life chat's really important because, you know, what you could, you know, big mistake I see, you know, someone gets their home that they're happy with for five years. Most people just say five years, like it's a random number. Um, and then they'll go and buy an investment property. And what they're actually doing is shooting themselves in the foot because, they know they're not happy in that property. It's potentially something they're going to outgrow. Um, and then they go and buy like another apartment, let's say, uh, and they've got two properties, but then three or four years later they had that child, they're outgrowing the apartment and they want a house. And the only way to make that house happen is to not only sell the house they're in now but also sell the investment property they just purchased three years ago. Um, and so I think that's a really important discussion is, is is what where are you going to live long term? And if it isn't in your current property, my you know my brain automatically goes to thinking, well, should we be buying that as your investment property? Should you be buying your future home? Um, you know, or should you be doing an upgrade earlier rather than just staying in you know the the place you're in now till you outgrow it? Why don't you move into something that you can grow into? So that's probably the first thing that. I think about. What about you, Veronica? That's such a good point because, you know, the amount of times that we have people come to us and they want to upgrade their home, you know, they've had kids um, or they're, they're doing really well in their career and it's it's time to sort of move to a bigger home or a different area and they've got this sort of couple, you know, some of them have got more than one um, investment property that are really horrible and they're not good assets um, but they are also severely impacting their ability to actually move into the home that they really want to live in. And so they then can't quickly, so it's not just that, yes, you have to go and do that, you have to sell those things, et cetera. That takes time. Good point. And so if like you look at a rising market right at the minute, you know, those people are really hamstrung. So they've, they've invested with all the right intentions, but like you say, they haven't had that life chat first to think, okay, really where do I see myself and what, what do I need to have in place or what do I need to not have in place so that I have that freedom to do that? And so that that is something that I really do see a lot and that is something that we really didn't see at all until really from 2016 when the whole lending rules changed. Um, mm. And so, you know, the whole, yeah, the, buying an investment property, yes, you're absolutely right. It has to be taken in consideration with where you're at now because it can become a noose around your neck. Uh, there's that, also the I was about to say there's also the argument in a low interest rate environment and with the tax, the favourable tax treatment of buying your own home that you know some people are saying well I'm going to invest in my own home more than actually buying additional properties so are you seeing that decision? 
I think it's a really good point. We'll cover that in one of the other questions that Lily has said, because absolutely in low interest rate environments, encourages home ownership rather than investments because people say, well, yeah, I'd really love another bedroom or a study or to get to that better street or a different suburb. And when interest rates are low, it's easier. It's more affordable for people to do it. Hence why you've got this boom at the moment through driven by home buyers, because people are saying, well, yeah, I only live once. I really want to love the place I live. I can take on that extra 500 or a million dollars of mortgages. Um, I also think there's a really good point you said about the time to sell. It's one of the big negatives, I guess, of property um, is that it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and sometimes the person who buys your property wants a longer settlement and they're the ones offering the most money. So, you know, <laughs> with shares, you can sort of wake up tomorrow and go, right, let's liquidate, let's get everything in the bank account, let's move on to the next thing. Um, and the thing that really stands out, this is where a poor asset really just, you know, the veil sort of comes back is because poor assets take longer to sell. You know, if you've got a great asset, you've got lots of clients at the moment who are in this real stuck sort of Mexican standoff. They, they haven't got the guts to sell their home, um, even though they know it's a great asset and they really want to upgrade um, because they know what they want to buy is just not not there and they know that it could take six to 12 months. They don't want to be out of the market for six to 12 months. So they're in a great position because they know their property will sell within two or three months, um, but they're stuck because they, they haven't got the guts to sell and be out of the market in such a hot market. So the second thing, I guess, go back to Lily's question is how much are you on top of your debt? You know, it's not about what percentage, but it's how fast are you paying it off? You know, how much are you smashing your mortgage down? And, you know, you can really easily just do some calculations of if you kept your current repayment or, and then you put a couple of wage rises in there potentially if you, you know, you think that's likely. Um, but how fast is this going to be pay off? You know, if it's 2021 now, um, you know, are you going to be paying your mortgage off in the next 10 years? Um, and if you're in your 30s or 40s, you know, what, what will you do when you get to 50 and your mortgage is paid off? Will you think about doing, you know, other investing then? So if you are smashing your mortgage down and you're paying a lot more than minimum repayment and you're likely to pay it off in, say, the next 10, you know, maybe even up to 15 years, I'd be arguing you to you just to say, well, why don't you just slow down that paying off a little bit, not much, um, and direct a little bit of that cash flow to support an investment property? Because even though you might be paying off your home slower, you've still got a lot of runway. You know, retirement's not around the corner. Um, and so, yeah, definitely paying your mortgage, you know, you need to have a bit of equity there, but you don't have to have it down to 30%. There's not these sort of round numbers that um, are, is like a rule of thumb. I just don't think everyone's got different circumstances. Although I guess if you're going to use that equity to borrow against for another property, you do have to have a certain amount in there, don't you? Absolutely. And so this is a... You know, the interesting thing with this is last year we were getting a lot of poor valuations with property. And so equity is basically whatever the property is worth today, but not what it's probably worth. And that's always a bit of an eye-opener and frustration for clients because we'll order a valuation. <laughs> you can do it free with pretty much any lender. Uh, and a client might think it's worth a million dollars, let's say, and we'll get the value back and it'll be eight fifty. Or it'll be nine hundred, or it'll be like nine fifty. It, it's very rare that we get a valuation and we go, "Oh, yeah, that's fair. We're happy with that." I mean, really, there's um, uh, no incentive for the valuer to to put something a big number on it. Um, ultimately, you know, to protect themselves, they're going to go a little bit under what they probably even think it's worth. So, um, let's say you think it's worth a million, the value will come back at nine fifty. 
then eight, the, what an equity is, is 80% on 950. So that's 760. Um, and then, so a lot of clients will say, well, I've got heaps of equity in my property. Well, your equity really only starts once your mortgage is under 760. And so if you've got a mortgage of say 700, well, you've only got 60 grand of equity in that property because it's only up to 80% of what the valuation is. And so I get a lot of clients saying, I've got a property worth a million dollars. My loan's only 700. I've got 300 grand of equity. Well, no, you haven't. Not in the bank size. You've only got 60 grand. Um, and so that's a bit of an eye-opener discussion. And that's what you would use for the deposit on something else, which 60 grand wouldn't be enough for a deposit on something else. That's such a good point. I'm glad you've explained that. And the other thing too, that equity isn't just debt reduction, it's growth. And this is why it's really important to look at capital growth when you're buying a property, even if it's your own home. And a lot of people do say, oh, capital growth is not important. I'm going to live in it for 20 years. But yeah. it is important if you want to dig down into the equity in order to buy an investment property, right? Well, it's important for lots of reasons, but that's just one reason. And so in that, you know, so therefore you want the property to grow in value because that that plus your debt reduction or that you whatever you put in your offset account is the equity. And so, you know, that's that's really where you make money while you sleep in a way with property. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't really like that line as well. It kind of frustrates me a little bit um, when, you know, clients say, oh, it doesn't matter if it doesn't grow, it's my home uh, <laughs> or I'm going to keep it forever. Um, I'm never going to sell it. Um, nothing is to perpetuity. Nothing's to infinity. At some point it sells, even if it's a death. Um and so then that money would go to your kids or your sister or whatever. And so um, 100%, you know, especially when it's your home, absolutely, you know, you need to be you know, personally making sure it's a great asset to grow um, plus get the lifestyle. You know, you don't have to have one or the other. You could have them. And usually the properties that grow the best have also got the best lifestyle. They're on the better streets, they're, et cetera. So, um, yeah, try to try to do both. It's uh if it's great to, um, if it's not growing and it's not great to live in, then I have to argue whether you should be buying well, it. Well, with that, assuming all the things things are equal, you know, you're going to need, I'm guessing, at least forty percent equity in order to be able to do anything. Would that be fair to say? Um, potentially. I mean, it really comes down to you know how how much is the house worth, or what your your home is, what it's worth. Um, you know, it could be a two million dollar home, right? And um, you know, your loan could be down to say one point two. Um, and then, you know, if you're 80% on 1.2 million, 1.6, that's a lot of equity there that could go. So it really depends on how big expensive your home is, but you're right. You're going to need a fair whack. Um, I just want to say as well, some professions don't need to go up to 80%, you know, in terms of their equity, they can actually go up to 90%. So, you know, accountants, doctors, surveyors, um, you know, et cetera, lawyers, um, yeah, they can borrow at 90%, not only on the equity but also on the investment property. And so they have got a massive advantage on um, other buyers out there because they can leverage their equity a lot further than the average punter on the street um, without paying any lender's mortgage insurance. So, yeah, equity is always a funny one. I think people think they've got a lot more equity than they always do because of the low vow, because of the 80%. Um And how much equity do you need? Now, this is a funny one. So a lot of people think if I'm going to buy a property, investment property at a million dollars, I'm going to need a 20% deposit plus 5% for stamp duty. So that's 25%. So I need $250,000 of equity um, to buy in a million dollar place. Well, not really. You know, you really need at least probably a 10% deposit. Um, 
ideally, and plus 5% for stamp use. So I'd be aiming for that 15% because lenders' mortgage insurance doesn't get that expensive until you sort of go over 88 to 90%. Um, and it's also deductible over five years. So if I'm going to buy an investment property, as long as I've got enough equity to cover a 10% deposit plus stamp duty, and if I have to pay a bit of lenders' mortgage insurance, I'm not that bothered because it's tax deductible and it's not that expensive at 90%. So I think that's a really good point where you should be doing it. But we haven't got to our third indicator, um, and that's buffers. Um, you know, you, you don't really want to be using all your equity. You've got nothing in your offset account. You've got no other savings. Um, and then leveraging it up. And then if something happens to your situation, whether you or your partner or your health, um, you know, at work, etc., and your income doesn't come in, you can literally blow up everything because you can run out of cash. And so buffers are the absolutely, if there's not a decent buffer built up in the offset account, I'll encourage clients to keep on saving because the biggest risk with property investment is you have to sell, um, you know, at poor times. And so buffers is the name of the game, not only in property, but in business and life, really. So with an offset account, so say that you've you've got a nice big chunk in your offset account and that's yep. part of the equity that you're going to use to buy an investment property. Once you buy that investment property, do you have to then pay down the your home debt with that off, that amount in the offset? Is that how it works? Because how does the bank get access to it to make sure that you can't then go and spend it on a flashy car? It's a really good point. So we've got a client at the moment who uh, yeah, he's got low one millions of, say, let's do the numbers, 1.2 million of debt, but he's also got 700 grand in his offset account um, just because he waited an upgrade and we were able to sort of give this big buffer to him, right? But he wants to buy an investment property right now. And because of his income for him and his wife and how much they can borrow, the only way that they can borrow a decent amount to buy a decent investment property is to pay down that mortgage of 1.25 and re- use that money in the offset account to pay off the mortgage. So that mortgage won't be 1.25. He'll probably have to pay it down to about 700 to 750, which will still give him a buffer around 200 grand um, is probably what we're trying to do. But what that does is it means that his home debts from a tax, uh, from a borrowing capacity is now only 750, not 1.25. So a bank says, well, yeah, if your home loan is only 750, we'll lend you a lot more for an investment property. And so when clients are in a position where they've got a massive amount in the offset account, um, then the bank uses the limit of the loan. They don't even look at the offset account. And so for them, sometimes they have to pay off their home to allow them to buy an investment property if their incomes are restricting them. But if they can borrow a lot of money and the incomes are really strong, um, then potentially they can keep this huge amount in the offset plus buy an investment property. So I think that's one of the things you've often said before, how do you improve your borrowing capacity, earn more money? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. Okay. It is true. I think the um, – so, for example, it's a real eye-opener. We get clients who say, well, the property is servicing itself. It's positively cash flowed. Shouldn't I just be able to buy another one? Um, well, no, like a really – it's pretty mind-boggling. Like if you buy a million-dollar investment property, you may get $600 a week rent, do you reckon, maybe? Oh, no. No? <laughs> These days, well, you might, yes. yes. Let's just say 600 yeah. So that's thirty grand a year. <laughs> and mm. if you then have to, the bank will then haircut that $30,000 a year. Now, usually by 20%, it could be more. So your $30,000 a year rent is now only 24000 because they haircut it in case of vacancy and cost to run your property, et cetera. And then if you times that $24,000, let's just call it twenty five. if you times that by six, 
that's 150,000. That's roughly how much you can borrow based on the rent. So the other 850 or 800, let's just call it, has to be funded by income. So you have to have the income to support that debt. The rent only covers a very small amount of that debt um, in terms of income. So that's usually an eye opener for for clients that it's income that drives big portfolios. You can't just keep on building property portfolios based on rent. That old chestnut. Right. So the second question, in terms of location, does the advantage of having local knowledge outweigh the risks of having all your eggs in one basket? And if the advice is to diversify, does that mean look at a different suburb or is it better to look in a completely different city? Diversifying makes sense in theory, but buying in an unfamiliar city seems risky. Such a good question, isn't it? I think it's a good one for you to start on this one, Veronica, and I'll chime in at the end. <laughs> so, okay, there's this thing called home bias where, and I've met so many people over the years where they have bought quite literally a property around the corner from their existing home Um as an investment. And they do that for a number of reasons. You know, they can drive past, they can keep an eye on it. They know the area. They feel like they, they feel like they understand the dynamics of that area. They've already paid money to buy into that area. So therefore they've, they're biased or automatically to think that that was a good decision. So they follow that with another decision. So there's lots of reasons why our, our behavioral biases support, um, us wanting to buy in a good, in, in the location in which we're in. And, and look, I've done it myself. Let's face it. You know, I've, I've, my properties, um, you know, at one point I had two in Leichhardt. Now I don't recommend that and I have none in Leichhardt now, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I've done it myself. So um, and then there's a good argument to say, well, if that's a great area, then why not, yep. you know. But the problem is that even in a great area you can have um, macro environmental things that happen in that area that affect every property in that area. Yep. So I'll give you an example at the moment, and it's look it's slightly off piste a little bit, but I have an investment property in Alexandria. It's a house. I don't have an apartment there. I have a house. Now, capital growth wise, that's doing very very well. It's a great street. It's in demand, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But rent wise, and this is not specifically um, in relation to whether you choose because we don't buy for rent, right? We've already said that. But that rent on that property is impacted severely because of the glut of apartments in this in the same suburb and mm. further on into an adjoining suburbs. So so it is impacted by things that are completely irrelevant to that property. Um and that class of property, and and if I go to sell that, which I'm not going to, but it would do very, very well. I know it mm. would do very well. I track it, but but renting the yield is appalling. So that's just an example, I guess, of something that can impact the property that is completely out of my control. And if I decided I was just going to buy a whole bunch of houses in Alexandria, they're all going to be impacted by that. Whereas if you know I've got my eggs in various baskets and they're in different suburbs, then they're going to be impacted differently by those four. So that's just one example. Um, that even in a great suburb, you can be impacted. So diversification is a good thing. Um, the other, on the flip side of that, local knowledge is also essential to make good decisions. So whilst yes, you can be completely biased by your local knowledge. You know, if you have no local knowledge and you think you're completely agnostic about where you buy, you can be very much open to be swayed by um, data effectively and making data-driven decisions without any real understanding of the, the fundamentals of a particular market. So, so these are the sorts of things that 
we need to be aware of our limitations, but also um, our temptations, I guess, to be swayed uh, by various rules of property, right? So I think that um, the other thing that comes down to, that has to be considered is when you're buying an investment property, you have to think, I want to buy the best possible grade property I can buy. And if I can't afford an A grade property in the area that I know and that I understand, then I need to then start researching other areas where I can buy an A grade property. Yeah, I think that a home bias is a really good point. Um, I think confirmation bias is so strong. And, you know, when you own something, you also overvalue it. So if you're <laughs> in your suburb, you think your property is better than every other property um, and you also think that your area is the best area in the world and, um, you know, et cetera. And so you think your property is doing better than it probably is. Um, you also think that your area is going to keep on doing what it's already done, you know, recency bias, et cetera. So, um, and it's just so strong and, you know, it's so easy as well. You know, um, you know, you think about you walking down the street and you see someone renovating, oh, I should buy an investment property and there's a sign and just make it happen. And so it's so, so common. And I think I personally would try to make, obviously know that you're potentially going to do that. And then just look at, are you going to be able to afford the best assets in that area? You know, the A grade streets, et cetera, or have you got a budget that's a, you know, the buying the C's and the D's. And so if you are buying the poor assets in that suburb, that's really, you know, time to move on, you know, look at alternatives. If it is the best assets and you really do know the best streets, um, yes, it's worthwhile considering that, but you do have to be, like Veronica said, conscious that there could be some sort of macro or a local area thing that could double hit you. And that may may or may not sort of wipe you out, I guess, of whether that decision was good. Um, I think ultimately, you know, every suburb or every city, I think has different price points where you're going to get a quality asset. And I think if you've got, for example, a budget of 500000 and you say, I want to buy a great investment property in Sydney, a uh, bit tough, Veronica. Um, Forget it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but maybe, you know, if you really, I would probably argue, maybe try to improve your borrowing capacity first or save more or build more equity or increase your income. Um, but maybe somewhere like Adelaide, but even Adelaide might have run on you. So depending on what your sort of capacity is for an investment property, that ultimately, I believe, determines what cities you should look at, you know, because at certain cities, you're going to be able to get much more value for money, you know, much more bang for your buck if you have certain borrowing capacities because, yeah. Be careful on that though. Just when you say that, because a lot of people, for instance, say, I don't know, 10 years ago, they'd be saying, oh, I'm not going to buy an investment property in Sydney because, you know, for the price of a one-bedroom apartment, which, you know, as as (laughs) proof is is in the pudding, let me (laughs) tell you though, the one-bedroom apartments in Sydney aren't doing so great. But for the price of a one-bedroom apartment in Sydney, I can buy a two-bedroom in Brisbane. Yeah. And it's like just because you get more bedrooms doesn't actually make it a better investment property. Absolutely. It is the, the grey, the calibre of that property in those areas. So just I just wanted to clarify that in case everyone's thinking, okay, if I can get bigger somewhere else, it's better. It isn't – that's not how it works. Yeah, not just in terms of more bedrooms, right, more land. You know, a lot of people mm. think the, the amount of land, 700 squares is better than, say, 200 square metres of land. And I'll go, well – you know, if it's a much better location and it's 15, 20 k's closer to the city and it's got a heritage-looking house on it, I'd much rather that than 700 squares in the middle ring. And I think there's that belief that land, the amount of land that you get in land banking um, is is the great strategy when ultimately it's the scarcity of that land that 
really drives prices. So, um, yeah, I'm not against buying locally, but you do need to make sure you're getting absolute quality in that suburb. Um, you're not just buying something that's easy. The reality is the best quality properties in a suburb trade a lot less frequent and a lot hotter and a lot harder to get than the um, the C's and D's and even the B's. And one last thing on the diversification in location is land tax. And uh, yeah. so if you're buying houses, then there's a, a real argument not to buy them all in one state because every state territory has a threshold uh, for land tax and, you know, it's not a national tax, it's not a, a, yeah. a federal tax, it's a state-based tax. And so if you have, say you have three houses and they're all in Sydney, um, you are going to be paying a hell of a lot of land tax, whereas if you had one in Brisbane, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, you might not be paying any or you might be paying a very small amount of land tax. So, and that that is a a tax it that I rail against. I really hate it. And particularly because it's got nothing to do with your income. And so, you know, regardless of whether you even get any income on that property, you are going to be paying it. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really good point as well. We've, you know, we've seen clients that have heavily gone into say New South Wales or Victoria and the land tax bill does add up, you know, the percentage as you go over different brackets um, can be a lot of money. And so, yeah, it's a good point, but I do be careful there. Don't just assume that I want to save on land tax, so I'm going to swap swap states. And then you take <laughs> a different budget to, you know, Victoria or New South Wales, you're living in Brisbane, or, and you also then sacrifice on investment quality to save on land tax. So I'd much rather pay a bit more extra land tax and get the growth on a quality asset. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Okay, third question. Is there any guidance around the value of an investment compared to the value of your place of residence, assuming you can service repayments? For example, would it be weird to have an investment property worth more than your place of residence, assuming you are happy living in a modest home? This is a good one. Mm. And I've got two examples to talk about this, but I'll, you go first. It is a really good question. Um, is it weird? I mean, that's it's just I like that, that uh, term of phrase as well because, um, you know, you're really thinking about things deeply here and you're going, oh, look, I've got a house and I've got this really expensive investment property. What I love about it is, though, is that what you're suggesting there is quality, not quantity. You're saying it's going to be an expensive place. It's going to be, you know, a lot more than our house, but we're going to get a quality asset. And I think that's a it's a good thought process to think through. Um, like I said at the start, though, this is where I'd also be thinking through, is your home a really quality asset? You know, is it, you know, should you potentially be using your servicing and upgrading your home, um, you know, and get it grow tax-free? Um, and interest rates have a huge play in this because when interest rates are low, then you can afford to take on a lot more debt and get a much more expensive investment property. Um, and then cash flow, the ongoing sort of, you know, thing you need to sort of fund every year, you know, even before you get your tax back every year, you've got to kind of pay that money first. Um, it has a huge impact on whether, you know, you should sort of take out a lot of money for an investment property. Interest only is another sort of thing as well. You know, that's why, um, you know, a lot of homes, it's really hard to get interest only on at the moment. The way that the banks have to sort of, you know, fund their loan book. They can't really give interest only to homeowners, but they can give it to investors. So if you are a bit concerned about taking on a lot more debt and you don't want to take on a big home debt, 
Well, if you can guarantee yourself interest only for, say, five years, um, you can guarantee it a very low interest rate and you can get yourself a quality asset, then maybe that's a lot less pressure on your cash flow than taking on home debt. So um, they're all sort of good questions, but I don't think it's weird because what you're really doing is suggesting that you're going to buy a really quality asset um, and you're super happy in your home because you've sort of thought that through. So, yeah, I don't think yeah. it's a good question. I think the the weirdness comes from, oh, but, you know, that's sort of not what everyone else does. And I think <laughs> I think that's really how fabulous that, you know, that's why we love this question, this whole question so much. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a... Um, you know, I've got some clients who live in a, uh, they live in Sydney, but in a sort of a, in the outer suburbs, they've grown up there, their friends are there, their mm. family are there. They are so established and settled in that area. They love it, you know, and it's a less expensive area and they've got, you know, good incomes, right? So they are going to be buying a property as an investment that potentially be worth more than the home that they live in. Um, because they are going to buy that investment in a in a much more I guess established area for capital growth, right? And so they're making they're making lifestyle decisions around that. It's like this is where we want to live, this is where our families are. Why why would we push ourselves outside mm. that area? And we don't have to spend that much money to live here. We can live in a lovely home without having to go crazy. And so yep. they've got the ability, the wherewithal to invest in a effectively, it'll be smaller, but probably more valuable <laughs> than what their home is. So that that's a really sensible thing to do. And I've got another client who, you know, they've got a young child. They're living quite minimally, you know, in terms of they've got a quite a compact place, but they're quite happy there. They're, they're probably only going to have one child. Um, and then as that, and that, child isn't yet at school and so they are actually looking at buying an investment property that is significantly larger than the current the home that they're living in now I wouldn't necessarily go about it this way but this is the way they're going about it that they potentially could move into that investment property when it's um, yep. when their daughter gets gets bigger and needs more space and and so and also then they can make and so they've obviously got a structure thing we'll get to structuring because there's part of this question coming up but you know, they're obviously structuring things to allow themselves maximum flexibility around that mm. and there are tax implications, et cetera. But, you know, that is, that's what their decision is and they are very happy living where they're living for the moment and for the foreseeable future it's going to be ample for them, for their needs. Yeah, absolutely. Like not everyone should just keep on chasing the postcode and keep on chasing the bigger house, um, you know, living simply, living with lower debt and having sort of investment properties um, is a pretty good place to live, you know, uh, sort of way to live is because you haven't got this sort of big burden on your sort of cash flow to pay this sort of big mortgage. And so we see people in different states regionally come to us and maybe their house is worth seven or 800,000, but it's a really great house and it ticks all their boxes and they're not going to leave like you said but they've also you know got great jobs and they're earning great money and so they're going well let's use all that equity there uh, and let's buy you know into Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane etc so mm. yeah it's, it's a good question I don't think you should be really focused about how much it is it's really a case of what's the quality and can you afford to hold it long term I guess the only downside is that that your one of your bigger assets is going to be taxable when you sell it as opposed to your home that's probably one of the downsides. <laughs> it is a good point. I mean, if, if you, but if you're in an area where you can't really upgrade, you know, and you don't really want mm. to, then yep, yes, you've not got this bigger asset growing tax-free. There is a really chick, uh, tricky thing you could do with a six-year rule potentially, you know, to get tax advice around it, uh, and that's moving into a home, making that your principal place of residence, which could be your investment property, 
staying in it for a period and moving back into your other property and um, things like that are a little bit uh, tricky, but you could potentially do. So um, yeah, that hopefully answers that question for you, Lily. Okay. The fourth question uh, we've got, uh, in terms of type of property, is it good to diversify from your first property or just to focus on a quality asset? For example, our home is a townhouse. Should we try hard to get a freestanding house for an investment property? And I guess this goes into diversification is not just in location, but it is in the actual property itself, right? Yeah. And I think when I read this question, I think, okay, a townhouse. Now, you know, there's two types of townhouses. There's the, mm-hmm. you know, the cookie cutter. Um, they all look exactly the same. They're built by sort of mum and dad investors a lot of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, they're three or four in a block and they're in areas where they're going to build a hell of a lot more of them, hence why that that's a new townhouse um, in the first place. If you've got one of those, I really got to argue whether it's a quality asset. Um, but there are the 80s and the 70s and the 90s townhouses, which you'll probably see a lot in Veronica around the city. Um, and some of them are an amazing place to live. So there's two types of townhouses. So I, if it is one of those new townhouses, my, my gut would be, well, you know, I know you like it and I know you like this new, but could you be better off in buying investment property? Just upgrade your home, get into the housing market for your home, um, renovate it and make it feel like a new home if that's what's important to you, why you want to live in a townhouse um, rather than, uh, you know, having a poor asset, let's say a newer townhouse, and you've got this great investment property that you could get growing tax-free and all the lifestyle benefits of living in, say, a house versus a townhouse. I think the property type has to be considered sort of as a function of location and budget. And mm. so when you're looking at a pure investment, I think what you're saying there is, is really good advice. Yeah, if you currently are living in a poor asset, mind you, people can, once again, we said that capital growth does matter even if it's your home. Yeah. Um, but people still might choose to stay there because that, um, you know, that they are settled and happy and content and, yeah. and there's a lot in that. There's, there's you know, there's you shouldn't go disrupting yourself <laughs> Now that you've owned it, you know, now that you've bought it, don't go disrupting yourself because you think, oh, my God, now I've got a C or a D grade asset um, because there are costs associated with that, all the rest of it. So, you know, but obviously would prefer that you question that before you actually bought it in the first place, right? Yeah. So if you're there and if you're happy, yeah, why, why, you know, disrupt yourself? But the property type comes into it. So, like, for instance, a townhouse in the inner urban areas, um, you know, that's a really viable option for families now. Yeah, families are getting sure. priced out of three-bedroom houses, you know. They're getting priced out of two-bedroom houses. And so a townhouse could have, you know, three good-sized bedrooms, two bathrooms, got parking, it's got a, you know, courtyard garden, um, well-located. I would go for that every day of the week yeah. over a, a crappy house, you know. I mean, in fact, just this weekend past, you know, I looked, I was in Ramwick and I looked at two properties and um, both quoted a similar amount of money. Uh, I wouldn't go for either of them for different reasons, but one was a house in a really down at, you know, not the greatest part of the suburb and the other one was a townhouse in the, in the better part of the suburb. Yep. And, and, you know, if, if the townhouse was a, a better, a better townhouse, I would have gone the townhouse over the house every day of the week. Yeah. Um, so, then it comes down to apartments. We haven't been talking too much about apartments because, of course, as a consequence of COVID, apartments are really um, suffering and God knows, you know, they're not growing at the same rate as houses. Um, some of them are going backwards, right? So but in some areas where there's apartments are scarce or when there's large apartments or, yep. you know, there's there's 
apartments shouldn't be discounted, but it does come down to your budget and location and really focusing on that scarcity um, aspect. And so, you know, and, and then it comes down to well, what's an appropriate property to buy in every location. So, yes, if you can get a freestanding house, but it is in a great spot and it's within your budget and you're buying an A-grade asset, absolutely do it. It might be that another townhouse in a better suburb might be a smart thing to do or an apartment. Yeah. So I guess that's where I'm coming at it with there. It's not as simple as saying all houses are better or houses are always better than townhouses. Yeah, it's a good point. Exactly. And I think interesting point around apartments, we're already starting to see the pressure shift from houses to apartments, you know, because houses are running on families and, you know, they're you know, running 15% or 20%, you know, if something was worth one five is now worth say one eight or two, right? Um, that's gone. It's now no longer an option for families, you know? And, um, you know, and so what they're doing is they're saying, well, I don't really want to move to the middle and outer ring. I can't move. I don't want to move to north of Wollongong or central coast. And so there's very little options now for that sort of young couple that's, you know, either got one child or are thinking about having a child and they're already shifting to buying apartments. And so the quality sort of family owner occupier apartments, I, I'd argue they're doing really well and they're already starting to, to go really well. So, yeah, not all apartments are equal, which we've said a thousand times on this podcast. But, um, yeah, it's interesting to see that the, the, this all this shift is already happening from houses to apartments, I believe. Right. So a fifth question, what are some tips and considerations for structuring mortgages? For example, we can make we can currently make minimum repayments and keep any extra in an offset just in case you want to buy or rent elsewhere and keep our current place as an investment property. Ah, it's the first time she's entered that one. Actually. <laughs> However, it's uh, looking more likely that this will be our forever home and future property purchases would be investments. Or if we didn't want to live here, we'd be happy to sell it rather than rent it out. Mm. Would that change the strategy? Answer is yes, of course, but keep <laughs> over to you. That's a really good question as well. I like, um, you know, there's a very savvy point in there where, you know, just dropped it in there and it's a big thing that a lot of people just don't know. And this is one of the reasons why I've been a big fan of offset accounts and also a big fan of interest only because what uh, Lily said there is that, you know, the reason she's keep doing the minimum repayments, um, which sounds crazy, right? Why are you only doing the minimum if you can afford it? Um, and she's keeping every single extra dollar in an offset account. Um, and what that's doing is it's keeping the potential tax deductible debt on that property. It's not deductible now because it's a home as high as possible. Like she said, just in case she wants to buy something else um, or rent something else and keep their current place as an investment property. Because as soon as you pay off that mortgage, then you're reducing its tax deductible debt because um, basically it's the debt that you first get to buy that property is what's deductible. And when you pay it down, that's reducing it. So, I mean, Lily, you're all over the structure, to be honest. Um, what you want to be doing is, you know, you know, it's very hard, like I said, to get interest only on homes. Um, it, back to 2014, though, every home buyer, because you could get interest only on homes and it was exactly the same interest rate whether you go interest only or P&I, we would set up a home loan as interest only with an offset account and educate our clients on the importance of building money in the offset account. Now, if clients are really bad with their cash flow or they need that sort of higher repayment to force them to save, then, yeah, absolutely go principal and interest. So really all, the best structure at the moment is principal and interest because you can't get interest only on your home. Um, have an offset account. But then when you've got a home loan debt, for any investing, you really want to go interest only because you don't want to be paying off your investment properties and trying to pay off your home. You really want to pay off your home as much as you can with your offset account 
um, and then have your investment properties on interest only. The good news is now that interest only rates on investments are pretty much exactly the same as P&I and you can get great fixed rates on interest only investments. Um, there was a period there where it was a much more expensive, um, but it's all the same. So, um, you know, that's probably the, the major sort of answer to your question. There's any other bits I've missed, Veronica? Probably not. I, I do love the fact that they're keeping maximum flexibility, mm. you know, and freedom is sort of the main reason why, you know, I think property investment done well is a great purpose for it. Yeah, exactly. And I think one thing I... I didn't say there is, um, you know, if we didn't live here, we'd be happy to sell it. Um, now, mm. I guess that's a that's a good sort of, um, you know, I see a lot of people get very, very, we own it, we can't sell it, you know, buy oh, and yeah. hold and, and they get so attached to not selling things. And, you know, when I look at clients' portfolio, sometimes it's best to sell sometimes some of their best assets, you know, especially if you can sell them CGT free. Um, because that can potentially allow them to do something else. And it's what would that allow you to do? And um, the emotional attachment around not selling um, can sometimes blind people to making a better financial decision. So I really like that. And what that also encourages is that maybe it's not a bad idea to pay that property down, use some of that money in the offset account to reduce that loan. If that frees up more uh, excess borrowing capacity so they can go and buy a better investment property and still keep enough money as buffers, which I mentioned around that client earlier. So, yeah, great question, Lily. You're all over it. And our last question, what are the pros and cons of using the equity in your home as leverage? It's a really good question as well because ultimately um, you've got to be careful and this is, um, you know, you could do, you know, work really hard, right? you Buy, save a 20% deposit to, to buy your first home, which is ridiculous how much money you've got to save. Then you buy potentially, you know, not the greatest of assets um, and um, you build a little bit of equity. You, you're a great saver and you've smashed your home loan down from, say, 800000 down to five fifty or 600000 You go, all right, let's buy an investment property. Um, and then you go and buy a poor asset. Um, now you're leveraging. You might not have a great asset and you go and buy a poor asset you're leveraging your money and it wouldn't take much for that best poor investment property to really lose value by buying an apartment in Melbourne and it's lost 20% or a mining town or there's so many examples all over the country, Perth. Um, and what you basically can do is, is really lose all that hard savings that you first um, saved to buy your, your house. Um, what you could also do is get stuck because you can't sell the investment property because you would then have negative equity on your home or you couldn't you have to pay off your home loan more than, you know, what your sort of debt is um, if on, based on the loss of the investment property. So you've got to be super careful buying poor assets, which we've sort of educated our listeners on over time. Um, the first thing you've also got to be worried about is cross-collateralization. Cross-collateralization. <laughs> cross-collateralization. Yeah. What a word. <laughs> it is. And what that basically um, means, and it's not really – my view on it as well, whether you um, cross-collateralise or you use equity in your home to buy an investment property. Let, let's just explain cross-collateralisation just for those who have never heard of the term before. Yeah. So, you know, a good practice and it's what we do is, is you know, we would borrow up to 80% on the home to fund the deposit on an investment property 
and it could be the same lender. A lot of people think you have to use different lenders um, and you would borrow 80% on the new property. And so the properties are actually not secured by one another. You've got 80% loan on your home and you've got 80% loan on your investment property. And if anything happened, for example, you didn't pay your mortgage on your investment property, the bank would sell that property first and then they would come to you and either give you the proceeds if there's any money left over or they would ask you for the money and then you may be able to find it and they wouldn't automatically sell your home. When they're cross-secured, if you get into a point where you go under and you don't pay your mortgages, the bank will ultimately sell your best asset first. They just want to get the money back as quick as they can. And so they might sell your home and then they leave you with an investment property. So that's one of the risks of sort of cross-collateralization. And that's, it's really important because I know that sort of early on in my investment journey, I had no idea about that. And uh, it wasn't until I got a good broker who sat down and went through everything and went, oh, we want to untangle this mess, mm. you know, and it took a while to untangle it. But it's, um, I had no idea that it was a mess. And it's one of the reasons why I always recommend going with a, uh, a, a broker who is good at um uh, investment savvy, but also at borrowing strategy, because you can get into all sorts of trouble when you try to actually borrow to buy investment properties before you're really ready. And it, could that be one of the risks of really trying to, to jump too fast into an investment property? It is because um, life's unpredictable. Um, and, you know, if, if people put a little bit more thought into their longer term planning, I think they'd be able to predict more things than they expected. But a lot of people will think, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but it probably was going to happen. But anyway, um, a lot of clients can go and buy their investment property. They use all their equity in their home and they borrow 80% on the investment property. So it's actually great because they've got a really big tax deductible debt. And then they go two years later, oh, we really don't like this area anymore. We really want to upgrade. And their investment property hasn't built any equity yet. And so when they look to sell their home, the bank means they and it's cross secured the bank will say well I, you haven't don't own that property anymore we have to pay your investment property down loan from you know 105% of the property down to 80% and so you can get this point where you basically lose a lot of your cash by paying off an investment property when you want to upgrade and you've cross secured and i've seen a lot of clients get themselves into this sort of pickle so if you are thinking about buying an investment property you really need to think about a home upgrade first um, do you need to do a renovation, all those sort of things, and then structure your investment property around that so you're not going to stitch yourself up. And there also is things where, um, you know, you can secure against investment property loans and things like that if you have to, but at least think these things through before you go out and um, use your home leverage. So that's it. There were six amazing questions from Lily. Thank you so much. Uh, we did say when you emailed us that we are going to build an entire episode over this and and so we have. <laughs> and so we do encourage you to send questions through to us and we'll have more Q&A episodes coming up. But uh, let's, let's see if we've got a Dumbo for this week. You got one, Chris? Sorry, totally put me on the spot. Um, ah. Didn't even think. <laughs> have you got one for us, Veronica, while I think about one? Uh, look, I've always got Dumbos. I, I, I'll give you a narrowly averted Dumbo. How's that? So I um, I do these property sort of strategy sessions every now and then for people and um, someone came to me and said, look, you know, my property's on the market, we're ready to go and, we're, you know, we're planning on upgrading our home, et cetera, et cetera, but now we feel like we've made a mistake and we want to pull the property off the market. And I'm like, 
and but can I, you know, can I pay for your time basically just to help us through this? And and so, yes, of course you can. Sat down and started going through. It was just, as I said, a narrowly averted Dumbo. So what was amazing is that, that because the market's going off, mm. They were being advised by all these well-meaning friends and family and all the rest of it, everyone with an opinion on property yep. that had completely swayed them on what their plan was. Yeah. And, you know, but these people, A, they don't know what they're talking about. B, they don't understand, you know, yep. market dynamics in different areas. C, they don't get the the concept of calibre of asset, yep. asset calibre. Um you know, there's this, you know, be in terms of, well, if you don't do it now, what is it going to look like in five years' time when you go to do it? All those sorts of questions are never, ever sort of explored properly when friends are just offering this well-meaning advice. Like, why would you sell a property in that suburb? It's just, you know, all that stuff. It's completely, complete ignorance. And so they were getting very, very, um, you know, a lot of noise. And as I said, narrowly averted because they actually popped their head out and went, oh, I know, we actually need to get some clear guidance. And, you know, they're, they're following a path with more confidence now because we talked through lots of, all these questions we're talking about today you know that that what are their long-term plans you know that how good is the asset you've actually got now um if you don't sell it what's what's going to happen you know what what led you to buy it in the first place etc 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 you know how how well do you have you uh, explored your next step all of those things that we we talked about so that, as I said, they can move forward with what they're going to do next with confidence. But it was just amazing how they were going to pull the pin on the sale of their property, which may have been the right thing to do, like, I, don't get me wrong, but based purely on, on you know, all those people with their opinions. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few of those as well where uh, a client very close missed, literally the second, you know, bidder at the auction, the you know, first loser, I guess, Um and missed out on a property and came to us after that and told us the experience and was so relieved. Um, and when you look at the quality of the asset and what they purchased, you know, a couple of months later, um, it's chalk and cheese. And we're not talking a big difference in terms of the sort of amount. Um, and they, they just didn't know what they were doing. You know, they're not from Australia. They were um, wrapped up in the sort of hype of it all. Um, and, you know, I, I think what the sometimes they weren't really going for what they really want. They were just going for you know, that's good enough for us. Um, and, you know, and that's what was driving them. And I think ultimately now they look at what they've purchased and, you know, just by getting knowledge, they did engage a buyer's agent that I think was really good as well, just in the negotiation phase and got something pre-marked, pre-auction. Um, and so that was a big one. I've also seen two interesting ones from lending. I think we've always got a challenge um, in, in broking um, where clients come to us way too late for pre-approval. The banks are flooded. The, you know, all the stats are out there showing how much lending um, is happening and how the banks are all struggling to, to process pre-approvals and purchases and refinances. Um, if you are in the market, don't be a dumbo and say, look, I really want to buy that place, which we've got, we always get emails every week um, and they haven't really even got the documents ready. They haven't got you know, the numbers done and haven't lodged a pre-approval. Um, but an interesting one that just happened over the weekend, client came to us um, our financial advisor referred them to us and, uh, you know, she's really smart. She's a lawyer um, and, you know, she said, I want to work with you. I've already got pre-approval with the, one of the big colourful banks um, and they would be a good option but they're not the only option. And um, we said, look, the options to you know, the property she wants going very soon, let's suss out how good that pre-approval is and it looked pretty good. We did all our own numbers 
Um, but when she went and purchased this property, the bank that she wanted to use um, wouldn't actually lend her 90% NOLA mine because she's in sort of the legal field. And so we've been able to pivot with her and go to a different bank. Um, and uh, and, and, she, and there's not actually only a six-week settlement. And because she engaged a broker and not gone direct to the bank, she would have got there and got stuck and then had this whole stressful experience but we were able to pivot on that same day and say, look, no, they won't do it, but these three banks will do it. Let's just lodge with these guys. Um, and so I think that's a really good, you know, scenario where a client potentially just going, got a pre-approval with a bank and said, she'll be right, that's fine. Um, and then it wouldn't have been fine in this situation. She would have been very, very stressed because she's just purchased. How, how good is that? Our Dumbos this week really are narrowly averted Dumbos yeah. by getting good advice. <laughs> <laughs> the whole point of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please join us for our next episode, one of my favourite topics. It's the pain and gain report. We have Eliza Owen from CoreLogic joining us and we're going to be talking about not one but two of the last pain and gain reports, the September quarter 2020 and December quarter 2020. What has COVID done to the property market across the country? What's the difference in terms of loss-making property sales? We're bringing it all to you next week. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or north shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.